All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Hebrews is kind of in the second half of the New Testament, after the book of Philemon and before the book of James. Hebrews chapter 1, and this morning I'll be reading from the NIV. You can follow along in your Bibles or in your mobile devices, whatever app you may be using, as the scripture is being read for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. This is God's word. Well, if you are among the individuals and families who live here in Naperville, then you may have heard that an agreement was finally reached between the District 203 School Board, which has been having their meetings right here in this room, and the union for all of the support staff who work in the district's 22 buildings. Again, I know not all of us live here in Naperville, but many of us who are parents have been able to see firsthand how important these teaching assistants and reading specialists and office secretaries and health technicians and other support staff members can be for the education experience of our students and families. I was personally pleased to hear that the new contract agreement has been reached, but when the news was picked up and reported by the Chicago Tribune, there was one paragraph that caught my attention. And here I quote from the article published on November 23rd. It says, contract talks have been going, ongoing since March, and union members working without a contract since June. Negotiations became more public when union members started holding rallies outside of school board meetings and voicing their unhappiness with the board over protracted discussions, which required the help of a federal mediator. Mediator. You know, this often happens when two people or two groups are involved in a dispute, such as a labor dispute. They may try to resolve the dispute on their own, but if that doesn't seem to work, then the next step will often be to invite a third-party individual to help these two sides come to an agreement. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, talks about this in his book, Truths We Confess. He says, mediators are often used in disputes. Mediation presupposes an estrangement, a falling out between two or more parties who now oppose each other. The Bible says, that by nature we are at enmity with God, estranged from him. This is indeed true. Passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 7 remind us that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. R.C. Sproul expands on this in the same book I quoted earlier when he writes, if you ask an atheist why he hates God, he'll most likely reply, I don't hate him. I just don't believe there is a God. Even the agnostic says, I don't know whether there is a God, but if there is, I don't have anything against him. I'm not opposed to him. 
In other words, he continues, people will not admit that their hearts are filled with enmity and hostility toward their creator. The Bible says that this hostility runs so deep that we do not even want to think about God. I will admit, I've been a pastor for over a decade and a half, and I've been a Christian for longer than that, but that last sentence that talks about not even wanting to think about God, that really hits home for me. I will admit, even as a pastor, I can actually go quite a long time without even thinking about God. Maybe I'm the only one, but... I also wonder how embarrassed some of us might feel if we asked ourselves honestly how often we made the effort to even think about God this past week. Thought a lot about food, thought a lot about football maybe, about Black Friday sales. But God, well, maybe not as much. Could it be that some of us still feel a bit of this hostility or enmity, even though we've been believers for a while? Some of us may have also asked ourselves every now and then, how can I really know? How can I really know that God will keep on loving me when I keep sinning against him again and again and again? Well, the good news for us is that God has provided for us an independent, third-party individual to put a full and final end to the conflict between a holy God and sinful people like us. We see this in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has not been witnessed to at the proper time. We also see this taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession is kind of a summary statement for the Reformed and Presbyterian theological tradition which I personally hold to. This statement says, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. As the mediator, he is the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and the judge of the world. God gave to him from all eternity a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now, there's a lot of truth packed into this one paragraph, but the first three words are of great importance for our purposes this morning. It says, God was pleased to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. Now, that's remarkable because God was the injured party in the broken relationship between himself and sinful humanity. God is the injured party. And yet he was still willing to take the first step to bring about reconciliation. He didn't say, oh, fine, I guess, I'll do it. No, it says it pleased him. God was pleased to offer 
his one and only son to be our mediator. The confession goes one step further and notes how Jesus specifically fulfills his duties as our mediator. He is the prophet, priest, and king. Now, these were three important leadership offices in the Old Testament, and we're going to devote this Advent season to taking a closer look at how exactly Jesus carries out each of these crucial roles. We're going to start this morning by looking at Jesus, our mediator, the true prophet, and we're going to be looking at a whole bunch of passages as we explore this theme, but the text we read together from Hebrews 1 is going to serve as our home base, so I want to encourage us to keep it open in front of us with our Bibles or your mobile app, whatever you're using. Keep the passage open, even as we jump around. We're going to consider three themes together this morning. First is God's messengers. Second is what will be and what must be. And third and last, the final word. God's messengers, what will be and what must be, and the final word. Those are our three themes for today. We'll start with God's messengers. God's messengers. When we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, again, hopefully you have the passage in front of you right now. When we look at the first verse, we see the author reminding us about how God most commonly communicated with his people in the Old Testament. If I read it again, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He spoke to his people long ago or in the past, and he did so through the prophets. Now, who exactly were these prophets? Well, they were individuals who were uniquely called by God and supernaturally given his messages to pass on to his people. Let me repeat that. The prophets in the Old Testament were individuals who were uniquely called by God and supernaturally given his messages to pass on to his people. Now, the overwhelming majority of these prophets were men, but not all were. That's why I specifically use the word individuals in that definition. Because we do find a few instances in the Old Testament where women were also called prophets. Miriam, who was Moses' sister, was one of them. Exodus chapter 15 describes her as a prophetess. Another important instance comes from the book of 2 Kings when the law is discovered during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah decides to seek the advice from a prophet, and not just any prophet, but from a woman named Huldah. Now, this is important because there were other prophets like Jeremiah and Zephaniah who were around during Josiah's reign. But for some reason, Josiah chose to consult Huldah, the prophetess. Now, this being said, the vast majority of these prophets in the Old Testament were indeed men. And without question, the greatest of them was Moses. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, which Norm read for us during today's Advent reading. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses promises the people that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. There's a lot we can say here, but I'll try to keep it brief for the sake of time and highlight just two important sub-points 
The first is that Moses is apparently the starting point for a long line of prophets that God will raise up to communicate his word to his people during the Old Testament period. God says he's not going to speak to his people directly. He's going to speak to them through these prophets. These prophets will serve as mediators between God and his people. We see this in the following verses of the chapter. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that is Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now God says he will put the words, he will put his words in the mouth of the prophet. And the prophet will then share those words to the people. This leads us to our second subpoint. Since these Old Testament prophets were communicating not just their own message, but a message directly from God himself, these prophets, their ministry carried a unique authority. We see this in verse 19. There God cautions. Um, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to the words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, this is serious stuff here. God is warning his people that if they reject the messengers he sends, then they're rejecting the message that they carry. And more importantly, they'll be guilty of rejecting the one who sent them. If I put it another way, to reject the prophet is to reject God himself. This is why many of the prophets would usually preface their messages with a phrase that goes something like, this is what the Lord says. We see Huldah, the prophet, is doing this in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 16, when King Josiah seeks her advice. This is not just my words. This is God's word. This is what the Lord says. God's people in the Old Testament were to listen to these prophets because they were speaking for God. Rejecting these messengers was the same thing as rejecting God himself. Some of us may wonder, well, how did the Israelites know that a prophet was really speaking for God? Because weren't there a lot of false prophets in the Old Testament? That takes us to our next theme for today, what will be and what must be what will be, and what must be. It seems God anticipated this concern about false prophets. If you look with me again at Deuteronomy 18, in verse 20, he warns, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks the name of other gods is to be put to death. Okay, well, all right, but then again, how do the Israelites know? How can they tell the difference between a false prophet and a true one? Let's keep reading. Verse 21, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Answer, verse 22, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. There are actually a couple of ways that God's people could distinguish between a true prophet and a false one. 
And we see one way here. One test to know if a prophet really was sent from God was to wait and see if his or her predictions came true. The Old Testament provides numerous accounts of prophets who predicted what would happen in the future. In fact, this is probably the activity we most commonly associate with the prophets. They're supposed to predict what will be. What will be? The technical term for this kind of predictive activity is foretelling. Foretelling. We see many examples of this kind of foretelling from the life of the prophet Jeremiah. One of the more memorable ones comes from Jeremiah chapter 28 when Jeremiah runs into another prophet named Hananiah. Now, to set the stage a little bit, Jeremiah had already predicted or he had already foretold that God would judge his people for their idolatry and sin by sending them to Babylon and they'd be forced to stay in Babylon for 70 years. But Hananiah has a different prediction. Verse 2 picks up where he begins his prophecy. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Okay? So he's giving that preface. This is what the Lord says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. The question is, who's right? Jeremiah also foretold that the exiles would return, but he said it would take 70 years. Hananiah says it'll take two years. Who's right? Let's keep reading. Then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. He said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words he have prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Jeremiah is basically saying, Hananiah, I hope I'm wrong and I hope you're right. Because you know what? Your prediction's much more pleasant than mine. Two years is a whole lot better than 70. I hope you're right. I hope I'm wrong. But pleasant isn't necessarily the same thing as true, is it? And so Jeremiah continues in verse 7, Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. Jeremiah is echoing what Moses already taught back in Deuteronomy 18. If a prophet's really sent by God, then his predictions will come true. In Jeremiah's case, his predictions weren't nearly as pleasant, but he ended up being right. The first group of exiles did not return until about 70 years after they left. And as for Hananiah, he foretold that they'd come back within two years, but he didn't even live long enough to see that he was wrong because he died just two months after he made his cheerful but incorrect prediction. 
Now, predicting the future wasn't the only thing these prophets did. They also spent a great deal of time reminding God's people of their duties and obligations in their own day. In other words, their ministry wasn't just about foretelling what would happen later, but also forthtelling what must happen now. The messages of these Old Testament prophets was about both what will be, but also what must be. Many of them spent a great deal of time calling God's people to repentance and to renewal. Very often, they proclaimed a message that exhorted the Israelites to return to worship that was pure and a worship that was marked by obedience to the law that he had given through Moses. And this is also why many of these prophets were deeply concerned about issues that we might categorize today under the umbrella of social justice. We see an example of this kind of forthtelling from the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek Justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. He says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You see this unbreakable relationship between the way we worship God and the way we treat our fellow man. And passages like these and others remind us that these prophets weren't really trying to start a new religion. What they were doing was calling God's people to return to a pure religion. In other words, these prophets were reformers, not revolutionaries. These messengers served as intermediaries through their ministry of foretelling and forth. Telling. They proclaim God's words, not only about what will be in the future, but what must be right now. At this point, some of us may be thinking, well, this is all fairly informative, maybe a little bit interesting even. I think I have a better idea of how God spoke through these prophets in the Old Testament. But my question really is, does God still speak today? Does God still speak today? And if he does, well, how can I know? That takes us to our third and last theme for this morning, the final word. The final word. If you have Hebrews chapter 1 still open in front of you, let me read it again for us. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. This, my brothers and sisters, is astonishing. You know, we've spent this entire sermon so far focusing on the teaching of verse 1. God spoke to his people in the Old Testament through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. That phrase, in these last days in verse 2, that is code in the Bible for the period of history that starts with Jesus' birth and ends with his return. 
It's the era between his first and second comings, what we remember in Advent. As far as the New Testament is concerned, you and I, we are living in the last days right now. Now some of us might feel the most urgent question is the one I raised just a few minutes ago. Does God still speak today? But I think there's an even more important priority. We need to realize that God has already spoken to us as his people today. He has already spoken to us and he has done so definitively through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me go one step even further. If you have our passage from Hebrews open in front of you, then you might have noticed that the author seems to imply, even if he doesn't say it specifically, he seems to imply that even if God no longer speaks today, again, that's a matter of debate for Christians, but even if God no longer speaks today, if we just grant that for the sake of argument, even if God no longer speaks today, We've already heard everything we need to know in order to know Him, to love Him, and to live for Him in a way that honors and pleases Him. I put it differently, any failure on our part to understand God's ways, or any failure on our part to trust Him, any failure on our our part to obey Him, it's not because God has withheld something that we need It's not because we haven't heard enough from him. Because he has spoken to us through the person and through the work of Christ. And if that is the final word for us, then that would be enough. This, my friends, seems to be the overall flow of this passage. Some of you know that I love listening to music, especially classical music. I'm a nerd in that way. I just thought, well, if this passage, if these two verses were scored as sheet music, the beginning of verse 1 would start at pianissimo, and then there'd be a gradual crescendo until it climaxes at fortissimo, with Jesus as the final conclusive chord. If we were to ask whether or not God still speaks today, it would, surprise, it would not surprise me to hear the divine composer say, you've already heard the triumphant finished. You've already heard the final chord. Are you saying you need more? Everything that I wrote was meant to culminate in my son. He is the final word. In a very real sense, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what Moses promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Jesus is the true prophet that Moses foretold long ago. Our passage from Hebrews tells us that God has spoken in these last days through His Son. And here's the truly remarkable thing about Jesus. 
He isn't just a messenger who proclaimed God's word to his people. He's also the message itself. This is crystal clear from the passage from John chapter 1 that Audrey and Jin read for us from our Advent reading earlier. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus is the true prophet, my friends, because he is both the messenger and he's also the message. God's word in flesh. This is what we celebrate each Christmas. This is what the Advent season is really all about. We're reminded that the Son of God became a truly human person. Jesus, the divine word, became flesh and lived among his people. And what exactly is it about Jesus that makes his ministry as a true prophet so unique? What precisely was it that God wanted to communicate that he could not do so without sending his son to be born in the manger outside of Bethlehem? What is it about Jesus that makes him God's best and final word? Well, I'd like to suggest that it's because unlike any other prophet before him, Jesus proclaims everything that sinners like you and I need to know in order to be saved. And he did that not only through his teaching, but also through his perfect life, his suffering and his death, and his resurrection on the third day. Jesus, the divine word, became flesh so that one day his truly human body would be broken so that one day his truly human blood would be shed. Jesus, the divine word, was born on that first Christmas day so that he would die on Good Friday and rise again on Easter Sunday. And he did all of that so that he could provide a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. He's our great mediator. And so what must we do now? That's the real question for us, right? If God has spoken definitively through his Son, then what must we do? Well, at the risk of sounding too simplistic, my answer is, we must listen to him. We must listen to him. As God's people in the Old Testament learn to reject the messenger, and the message is to reject God himself. He has provided only one mediator between himself and mankind. Our Lord Jesus Christ, truly God, who became truly man so that through him we could find forgiveness and salvation when we put our faith in him. 
Let me also encourage us to listen to the voice of our true prophet in those moments when we feel overcome with guilt and shame. You may hear the voice of your enemy whispering lies into your heart, telling you that God doesn't love you, telling you that his patience with you has finally run out. And maybe you feel your own heart condemning you, telling you that your sins are too great for even God to forgive. You know, these voices always seem to be trying to get our attention. And so it's all the more important for us to be fixing our minds and our hearts on Jesus, our mediator. If you sense the guilt and shame, if you sense the condemnation threatening to overwhelm you, my friends, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Let's rest in Christ. Let's remember what Christ has done for us. This passage from 1 Timothy 2 reminds us that he gave himself as a ransom for you and for me and for all who put their faith in him. And so let's look to him and let's rest in him. God's final word. You know, I've shared this before, but one of my favorite Christian artists is a musician named Michael Card. I don't know if many of you have heard of him. He still performs every now and then, but his heyday was definitely back in the 80s and 90s. That's when I listened to a lot more contemporary Christian music. His style is on the simpler and quieter side, and um, he, he, I wouldn't call him a great worship leader because a lot of his songs are just so high. It's, an, it's impossible for normal voice human beings like me to sing. But what I really love are his lyrics. His lyrics have this almost poetic quality about them. And we see this in a song he wrote called The Final Word. I just kind of borrowed the title of this song for my third point in today's sermon, The Final Word. And I'd like to end this sermon by sharing the first verse and chorus for this song because I really can't put it any better than he has. This song, the final word, he says, You and me, we use so very many clumsy words. The noise of what we often say is not worth being heard. When the Father's wisdom wanted to communicate his love, he spoke it in one final perfect word. Of course, as he spoke the incarnation, then so was born the Son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one spoke flesh and blood so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born the baby who would die to make it mine. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you not only spoke long ago through the prophets, but you've also spoken definitively through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you were pleased to send your one and only son to be the mediator for sinners like us. And Jesus, we confess that we have no other hope apart from you. We worship you not only as God's true messenger, but also the message himself. Through your teaching, through your life, through your death and your resurrection, you have provided the way for us to find forgiveness and salvation. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to listen to you, 
Help us to trust you. Help us to submit to you. And help us to find our rest in you as our true prophet. We echo the confession of your disciple Peter who said in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we pray this in your great name. Amen.